This is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, Are There Levels of Enlightenment? Recorded November 17, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So today we have a series of questions that I drew out of the question box. One that requires a, a little more fuller discussion I made some notes on, but some of the other questions sort of relate to that, so I thought I'd give a, a sort of a, a short little talk about that and then talk about the other questions, and we'll just go through questions here until it feels uncomfortable time-wise and see how far we get. They're good questions, by the way. I must say the questions have been dropped in the box. Are, most of them are very good. So the question this morning, uh, the, start, the lead question, has to do with levels of enlightenment. Are there different stages? Are all enlightened beings in the same awareness? How do you differ from, from Amma? Amma's a Hindu uh, teacher, mystic, who uh, travels to this country occasionally, and I don't really know that much about Amma's teachings when I gather from people who... Uh, have visited her and been with her, and what little I know, her teachings are uh, emphasize the devotional aspect. And uh, in that sense, uh, you might call her a, a from the more from the bhakti school, the bhakti path. So just to, so you know who she is, uh, who's being referred to in the question. That's who Ama is. So let's take this. There are sort of three parts to this, and let's take uh, break it down and take each part. The first part, are there different stages of enlightenment? Well, it sort of depends on what you mean by enlightenment. Uh, if you mean what I call gnosis, and I tried to pick this word to be precise about it, then the answer is an unequivocal no. There are no more stages after gnosis, after enlightenment, because there's no, uh, there are no more seekers. The one who has been seeking and going through uh, the stages is realized not to exist. So, if there, let me put it this way, if there were stages, there'd be no one to occupy them. So, in that sense, in that ultimate sense, there is, uh, there are no stages after enlightenment or different stages of enlightenment if we mean arriving at this final and ultimate realization. And one of the reasons confusion arises about this is because different traditions have different terms for what I call a Gnostic flash. In other words, on the path, uh, you can go through stages or have uh, very profound, deep insights that are glimpses of this ultimate realization that there is no self. And the other side of that coin is that there is no world. So, in different traditions, they will have what sounds like different words for enlightenment for different stages of enlightenment. One example is in the Zen tradition. They have three words, uh, actually, that pertain to this. One is Kensho, one is Satori, and one is Daigo Tetie. I think that's how it's pronounced. I, I've never heard that one actually spoken. I've only read this in a book. Kensho is... A, the, the, the most general term. It really means any kind of uh, fairly profound Gnostic flash, a, a, a real insight into this selflessness. Kensho and Satori are often used interchangeably in the tradition, but Satori means a deeper, more profound uh, realization, and it can mean ultimate uh, enlightenment. It, uh, Satori's always used in terms of the great patriarchs. They talk about their Satori, you don't talk about their Kensho. But in, uh, in a contemporary uh, Zen community, if people have a, an insight, they'll talk about that Kensho. And then if you really want to be specific, you use this other term, Daigo Tetie. Uh, and that is full enlightenment, end of path, and so forth. But again, they, they can be used fairly interchangeably. Just because you read Satori doesn't mean it's not ultimate realization. It could be used that way too. The second thing is, uh, sometimes mystics within uh, various traditions themselves aren't consistent in the terminology they use. For instance, in uh, Sufism, there are primarily two terms for enlightenment, what we would call enlightenment and gnosis. 
One is Marifa, the most common one, and there's another one, Ilm, spelled in English, apostrophe, I-L-M. And these are both different terms for knowledge. And some Sufi schools will insist that Ilm is the highest knowledge, and Gnosis is a sort of secondary, Gnosis is more like a, a, a glimpse, and other schools will reverse them. Ibn Arabi, who's often considered one of the greatest Sufis, writes a whole uh, treatise on this and explains that this really is just a semantic confusion, that if you look into it, they're really talking about the same thing, they're using different words. Uh, they just, one school's used one word for the ultimate and, and the other... Uh, the other word for something, a lesser realization, and the other school just flips them. But then even Ibn Arabi, who wrote volumes and volumes and was not the most consistent philosopher, uh, is not always consistent in his use of these terms. So most often he uses marifa as the highest, uh, the word to indicate the highest realization. But then here's an example where he talks about, uh, well, I'll just read you what he says. Any knowledge which can be actualized only through practice, God-fearing, and wayfaring is marifa, since it derives from a verified unveiling which is not seized by obfuscation. In other words, he's talking now, any uh, knowledge that comes through practices on, on the path, uh, that comes through a verified unveiling, unveiling is a very general Sufi term that means any sort of insight, basically, uh, that he would call marifa in this context. And he says, this contrasts with the knowledge which is actualized through reflective consideration, that is, through thinking, which is never safe from obfuscation and bewilderment, nor from rejection of that which leads to it. In other words, any knowledge that you have as an idea, a concept, uh, is always going to be a subject to a doubt and vulnerable to attack. Somebody may come along and prove your ideas are wrong, and so you'll give up that idea and you'll have another idea. So he's talking here, he's using now marifa in terms of, uh, in a very broad sense, of any sort of direct insight you have into things, rather than some something that comes through the intellects, the, the discursive reasoning mind. So that's just an example of uh, a case where suddenly he's using Marifa, which he usually reserves for this highest realization in a very broad way for what the Sufis call tasting or unveiling. Those are two Sufi terms that are equivalent to the way we use just the word insight, direct insight. Uh, Christian mystics often use equivocating phrases, like they'll talk about attaining union with God as far as is possible in this life. You'll find this over and over again when you read through Christian mystics. Uh, this is kind of interesting. It, it, it has a history. This uh, sort of um, a phrase that indicates kind of modesty comes originally from Plato. And Plato was uh, an Athenian, and Plato's uh, social circle was of these very sophisticated, very skeptical Athenian intellectuals. And he would uh, use this uh, dialogue method to try to convince them to look into their own experience uh, and see what the truth of it was. Know thyself is, a, is a, uh, uh, a term that was passed on through Plato. It actually comes from the Oracle of Delphi, I think. So he kept getting these, trying to get these very skeptical, sophisticated Athenians to examine their own lives, their own experience, their own ideas. And in that situation, it would have been outrageous to them for him to come out and say, I'm enlightened or something. We know from his private correspondence and his letters that he was. So he always used phrases like this, as far as possible to understand and whatnot. This is just a, a, a kind of a courtesy, so he's not setting himself up above everybody. When the uh, Christian church formed and began to take over these Platonic doctrines and Christianize them, uh, they took over this phrase, and as these doctrines and dogmas solidified in the, in the Catholic Church, this became a very convenient way for mystics to uh, talk about their own experience without uh, violating the, the outer parameters of what the, do uh, the doctrine or the dogma of the Church was. So uh, when you read, particularly through Christian mystics, you have to read carefully, and you have to judge a Christian mystic on their total work. 
For instance, Augustine, who uses this term all the time, probably meant it very sincerely. He probably believed this because although Augustine was a mystic, in our terminology, he had deep, profound uh, insights, which he writes about uh, into the uh, ultimate nature of things. They didn't last, and he talks about that. He's very frank about that. He talks about this ascent and, and this glimpse of the, the truth and the light and so forth, and then how he falls back. So we would consider him a mystic, but not a Gnostic. So he probably felt that uh, you don't really get the full vision until after you die. But then there are other mystics, like Teresa of Avila, who if you, she uses this term quite a bit, as far as possible in this life, or as far as you can understand. <clears throat> but when you read through her carefully, there's no doubt that she's a Gnostic. And I'll give you an example of this. She's talking in the Interior Castles, uh, which is a, a story about the stages of a spiritual path. She uses the analogy of going inward. The, the self is like a castle, and there are these rooms, and you penetrate deeper and deeper into the castle until finally you get to the last chamber. And so she's describing what happens here. She says, The instantaneous communication of God to the soul is so great a secret and so sublime a favor that I do not know with what to compare it, beyond saying that the Lord is pleased to manifest to the soul at that moment the glory that is in heaven, in a sublimer manner than is possible through any vision or spiritual consolation. So right away she's making a distinction of the, some sort of realization that isn't a spiritual vision, it isn't a consolation, it isn't a bliss state or something like that, and she's saying, I, I just don't know what to compare it to. This, this alerts you now. Something's important happened here. She goes on, though. She says, it is impossible to say more than that as far as we can understand. The soul is made one with God. So she's thrown in this little as far as we can understand, but the soul is made one with God. That's, that's pretty um, uh, emphatic. Then she goes on to distinguish this from what she calls spiritual betrothal, which is uh, another state, a lesser state, and she talks about it in this way. She says, this favor, the one of spiritual betrothal, this favor of the Lord passes quickly, and afterwards the soul is deprived of that companionship. I mean, as far as it can understand. She's always throwing this in, right? In this other favor of the Lord, it is not so, this instantaneous communication. The soul remains all the time in that center with its God. Here it is like rain falling from the heavens into a river or spring. There is nothing but water there, and it is impossible to divide or separate the water belonging to the river from that which fell from the heavens. It all becomes one. Now, this, actually, she's never read the Hindu mystics, but there's the exact same imagery you find in the Hindu mystics and uh, all over this image of the river running into the ocean, the rain falling into the water or whatever. So she makes it very clear here, in spite of sounding like she's equivocating, but what she's describing, that, she's, uh, that this is gnosis. We also must remember, this is quite brave on her part to even be this frank, by her uh, age, when she was writing, the Inquisition was already in full swing. This was uh, towards the end of the, of the uh, uh, monopoly of, the, uh, of Christendom on the West. The, uh, Christendom itself was starting to fall apart. The Protestant Revolution had already begun, the Protestant Reformation. There was all this conflict. The Church had become very entrenched and very defensive. The Inquisition was at its height. And her confessor, who was sympathetic to her, had to send what she wrote right to the Inquisition. They were literally reading it over her shoulder. And sometimes they would sit down and discuss what she said, and he'd make notes in the margin to make sure that she wasn't going to be burned at the stake for this. And there was a lot of controversy around her. So even to come out and be this frank under these conditions is um, very bold. Some of the Christian mystics had to live with this. Uh, Brother Lawrence, after he died, nobody knew much about him because he wasn't important. He was just a cook in a monastery. But when he became known after he died, there was a whole controversy within the church around what he wrote. And the church, I must say, to be fair, was fairly forgiving. They would say, well, this guy, he's not a doctor of the church. He doesn't know the doctrine. He's just speaking poetically, you see. And so they would, they would forgive that as long as you took it as just poetically. If you insisted that this was 
actual reality, you weren't being just poetical and so forth, then you got into serious trouble. Meister Eckhart was one like that, and he wrote, When the kingdom appears to the soul and it is recognized, there is no further need for preaching or instruction. It is learned enough and, has ha and has at once secured eternal life. Now, that, that's a dangerous thing to say in, in medieval Christendom. There's no further need for learning or instruction. You don't need priests anymore. You don't, you know. And he was, in fact, um, uh, called down to be questioned by the Inquisition. He was, lived in Germany. He was called down to Rome, and they, um, they condemned the whole list of uh, his his writings, and they called him back to Rome. He was on his way back to Germany to answer these charges, and uh, he fortunately died of natural causes before he had to go back. Um, <clears throat> so the the lesson here, and particularly for Christian mystics, and also somewhat for Sufis as well, is is you have to read between the lines a little bit. You have to read them carefully, but you will always come across uh, if they are Gnostics. Uh, some statement, some description, you know from their own experience, like this whole description of Teresa Vila's, this beautiful description that uh, this is this is permanent, it doesn't uh, fade away, it is like the water entering, the water from the rain entering into the water of a stream, and this unity and so forth. Uh, this is, when you compare this to the writings of other mystics from other traditions, you see obviously this is what she's talking about. Another source of confusion is that in some traditions they talk about the stages after enlightenment. But if you read carefully the descriptions of what these stages are about, you realize they are not about further enlightenment, they are about the acquisition of teaching skills. This is particularly true in Buddhism. For instance, in the Lakamatara Sutra, uh, the Realization of noble wisdom, which is enlightenment, gnosis, occurs in the eighth stage. There's this uh, irrevocable turning about in the deepest seat of consciousness, as it's called. But then there are two other stages to go. There's the ninth and tenth stage. So what happens in these stages? In the ninth stage, the bodhisattva gradually acquires psychic faculties, self-mastery, loving-kindness, and skillful means. And by means of them will enter into all the Buddha lands. Making use of these new powers, the Bodhisattva will assume various transformation bodies and personalities for the sake of benefiting others. Just as in the former mental life, imagination had arisen from relative knowledge, so now skillful means arises spontaneously from transcendental intelligence. So what's happening on this and this stage is is a acquiring skillful means, mastery, and so forth, uh, so that you can benefit other beings. In the Tibetan tradition, they are, they add on six more stages after death. So there is a total of sixteen stages. So after death, you go through six other stages, but all of them are about acquiring these powers of uh, manifesting manifestation in all sorts of bodies and subtle bodies and gross bodies and whatnot. So we, we start to deal here with a whole other cosmology and a whole other way of thinking about what uh, enlightenment means. And, and now we are beyond the realm of anybody appearing in any physical body. So these are uh, Buddhas and powers that appear in illusory bodies and whatnot. And the third reason for confusion uh, is that Gnostics themselves exhibit differences among themselves, or, or, or seem to, different personalities, different kinds of behavior, different kinds of teachings. Here's how Shankara, a great uh, Hindu mystic, describes a Gnostic. He says, sometimes he appears to be a fool, sometimes a wise man, sometimes he seems splendid as a king, sometimes feeble-minded, sometimes he's calm and silent. Sometimes he draws men to him as a python attracts its prey. Sometimes people honor him greatly. Sometimes they insult him. Sometimes they ignore him. That is how the illumined soul lives. So he's describing right here this whole range of possibilities the way uh, a Gnostic may appear to other people. And indeed, if we, if we look through history, we see a, a whole range of manifestations. Jesus, who was passionate, a party animal, you know, liked to drink and dance. No, really, what is the first miracle he did is he changed water into wine at a wedding. Yeah. Uh, 
gotta know it's important. What? You gotta know it's important. Yes, of course. And uh, and then you know when Lazarus dies, he cries. You know he weeps. He displays all these uh, passions and emotions. Uh, and somebody, uh, oh, like Ramana Maharshi, didn't display very few passions and emotions. Uh, he's from a totally different culture, a totally different tradition. And in between, we have all sorts of. Uh, uh, examples of different ways that Gnostics appear in the world. So this can be very confusing. The, this difference of appearance is determined partly by individual personality patterns that develop. These are patterns developing in time, as we think about it in a relative sense. And uh, in our culture, they even have a genetic foundation. You know, There's a body there, and it's been shaped by its culture, and it's been shaped by its genes. And the way the uh, Hindus describe this often, or explain it, by way of an analogy is that this is the product of karma, the, the, whatever is manifesting right now. But the difference is, for the Gnostic, it's like an arrow that's already been shot. And once the arrow is shot, it will continue to fly out its course, and it will fall to the ground, but no new karma is generated here. So you might say that everybody is... Uh, people under delusion are constantly shooting arrows, and so they're constantly generating new karma. And for the Gnostic, the arrow's just flying, and, and there's no uh, intention behind it, there's no will behind it, there's, not any, uh, there's, not, uh, there's no more karma being generated. Uh, Gnostics who teach will teach differently, and this is partly determined by the path that they follow. You know, you teach uh, what worked for you, basically. And so if you are uh, uh, enlightened within a Buddhist tradition, and you've, especially if you've been studying under a Buddhist teacher, you tend to teach the meditation techniques that you learned and the precepts that you learned. They work for you, and so you pass them on. That's how traditions get going. If you're a, a Gnostic in the Christian tradition, you'll teach quite differently. You'll teach unceasing prayer, and you'll teach uh, the, the morality taught by Jesus in the Gospels and whatnot. So the differences here are the differences, just as quite practical, what, what uh, worked for you is um, what you know is what you teach. Uh, some uh, Gnostics try to find out more and uh, broaden their repertoire of skills. I do that. I continue to meditate and explore different uh, kinds of practices and so forth, partly because a central part of my practice, uh, I can't teach you. The, uh, my... Um, I'd say in my case, the guru function was split by, first of all, a, a disincarnate teacher, Athena, and there's no way that, uh, that I can make that appear to you, or that's just something that'll happen or won't happen to you. And then this was the wisdom function of a guru. She was a wisdom teacher. She was uh, uh, taught the practical side of the path. And then the devotional part was taken up by Samantha's role in my life. And that was falling in love and having this very concrete uh, object of devotion. And that's something you can't decide to go do. I mean, uh, you, you can't just decide to fall in love with somebody. Either it happens to you or not. So there's a, a major part of my path that I cannot teach. I mean, I cannot give as a practice. So I've spent a lot of time in the years since my enlightenment trying to broaden my perspective. But nevertheless, I always try to teach what I know. And sometimes I give a teaching and I'll say, well, I really have never done a mantra practice to a great extent, but uh, there's so much evidence in the traditions that this works, and I've read about it, that I will pass it on and, um, and ask you to try it and see what happens. And then finally, uh, Gnostics tend to uh, gravitate towards manifesting a, a, in a form that is tied into the great exemplars of their own tradition. So uh, Christians tend to imitate Christ. St. Francis imitated Christ, lived like Christ, because in that culture, people looked to Christ the way Christ lived was the great exemplar. In Hindu traditions, uh, the exemplars are the long line of mystics in any one particular school. And, for instance, Ananda Moyama is a wonderful example, uh, or she gives a wonderful concrete example of this uh, conscious imitation of exemplars. In India, going to Samadhi is a big deal. 
And in this little video we have of her, somebody asks her why she goes into Samadhi. She'd make a big public deal of going to Samadhi. They'd prepare a bed for her and she'd lay down and she'd go off into Samadhi. And somebody asked her, well, if you're enlightened, why do you go into Samadhi? She says, because you expect it of me. <laughs> Teachers are supposed to go into Samadhi. So it's really, um, it's really a, a, a practice of loving kindness. It's manifesting uh, in a form that people will be attracted to and understand so that they can receive the teaching. Most mystics have been good sons and daughters of their tradition. They have not wanted to scrap their tradition. They know the value of it. And as far as possible, they've tried to conform to the tradition because uh, if you insist on going your own way too far, you, you're not doing anybody any good. They'll think you're a, a, you know, a complete mad person or a heretic or something. You may be right, but so what? You'll just be killed and... And what good have you done anybody? So most of the time, the mystics have been, value their tradition, but most of the time they have to stretch it a little bit. And sometimes they have gotten into trouble, deep trouble for that. In any case, all these differences, the differences of uh, the kinds of teachings, the skills that someone has a teaching, the differences of the culturally determined forms of behavior, and the differences in what uh, personality patterns. For the Gnostic, they're all mere appearances. There is no person in that personality pattern. I think the best description of this comes from Ramana Maharshi, and he explains about uh, why it is that uh, um, realized people seem to have egos sometimes. He says, in the case of the Janani, the Janani is, the, is a realized, uh, in Hindu terms, a realized, the Gnostic, a realized person. In the case of the Janani, the rise or existence of the ego is only apparent. This ego is harmless. It is merely like the skeleton of a burnt rope. Though with a form, it is useless to tie up anything. And the image here is if you take a rope and you put it on a fire made of coals and you let it burn through without any wind or anything, it'll keep its shape. The ash will be in the shape of a rope, but you can't use the rope. You can't bind anything. It doesn't bind you anymore. So, uh, and this is interesting coming from Ramana Maharshi because in a relative sense, he probably had the least uh, ego of uh, uh, any modern uh, teachers that we know of. So, really, the answer to part two, are all enlightened beings in the same awareness, is there are no enlightened beings. Which is a sort of a sideways answer, but it's true. There's only the awareness. Or, as we would say, there's only consciousness itself. This is why uh, Long Chempa, a great Dzogchen master in the Tibetan tradition, writes, in the rootless mind, pure from the beginning, there is nothing to do and no one to do it. How satisfying. <laughs> it's one of, the, one of the best, short, succinct uh, descriptions of enlightenment I've ever heard. Ibn Arabi says, the people of perfection, that's his term for Gnostics, the people of perfection have realized all stations and states and passed beyond, so they have no attribute and no description. The root of this knowledge of Allah is the station reached ultimately by the Gnostics. That is, no station. In other words, the station of no station, not being in any station. The Tibetans, uh, by the way, also have a term called abiding in non-abiding. It's the exact same idea, having no station. Meister Eckhart writes, A man who would possess this poverty should be so free of all knowing that he does not know or experience or grasp that God lives in him. For, for when man was established in God's everlasting being, there was no different life in him. What was living there was God himself. So I say that a man should be set as free of his own knowing as he was when he was not. You follow that one? Before... A human being, a being, came into manifestation, uh, there was just God, that God was that life, God was that awareness, God was that consciousness. And so we, we manifest apparently as an individual, you realize you're not an individual, so 
even to know, if you say, oh, God lives in me, you're, there's still a me there, you see? So he's saying you shouldn't even, there's not even any knowledge that God is living in you, because there's no you. You, you are as you were when you were not. Lali Shwari, a great Hindu mystic, writes, When the sun of knowledge rose, the dew of ignorance disappeared. When I realized my oneness with the name of God, my I-ness was obliterated, and Lali found peace. So here we have from all these different traditions, everybody's saying the same thing. The realization is that there is no one to realize anything. That is the nature of the realization. And there's no one then to go through any more stages, any more stations, any more experiences, any more anything. As Ibn Arabi says, there's no more instruction, no more learning in that sense, in the spiritual sense. So the answer to the third part of this question, how do you differ from Amma, she's, the question is addressing me, really has two parts, and it hinges around, again, semantics and how we use the word I or, or proper names. Uh, and in, from a mystic's point of view, mystics have no trouble using I or these names in a very conventional sense. So if we're going to use it in a conventional sense, if we're going to mean that Joel and Amma as referring to two different appearances, then there are many, many differences. I'm a man, she's a woman, I'm an American, she's a Hindu. Uh, I, I, my teaching probably emphasizes inquiry, and hers apparently emphasizes devotion. Uh, I don't know, I, I uh, smoke cigarettes, I don't think she smokes cigarettes. There are all sorts of differences, innumerable differences. We speak different languages and everything. But if you are going to t use the term I to refer to your true identity, as the Hindus talk about, the Atman is that Brahman, I am that, you are that, then there is no difference. There's no difference because there are. there's no... One's there to be different. An ab the absence of one thing is no different from the absence of something else. No you cannot distinguish nothingnesses from each other. Does everybody get that? There really is nothing but awareness or consciousness and its forms. That is it. It is so obvious and simple, you're all looking at it right now. The two things you have absolutely no doubt about is there is awareness. Forget about all this business about whose it is and all that. There is awareness. And there are forms. There are appearances. That's it. Now, you look at me. You see this appearance, right? I mean, is everybody, does anybody not see an appearance? I don't know. Maybe you need glasses if you don't, or maybe maybe you don't see an appearance here. Maybe a disembodied voice is talking. It doesn't matter. Some voice is getting through. That's an appearance. There is nothing behind this appearance. I know that's hard to grasp. I know that the mind keeps saying there must be somebody there. Da 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 da. That's just imagination. There is nobody here. Nobody is home here. And it's absolutely true. And. There is nobody home there either. If you look beyond your appearances, you will never find anybody home. You'll find a lot of thought going around, creating characters and plays and all that. You will find nobody there, though. All there is is this awareness and the form. And the form is a form of the awareness. That's it. There ain't nothing more to teach or say, really, when it comes down to it. Enlightenment, or gnosis, is just that realization. It's nothing less, and it's nothing more, either. That's it. So let me uh, go on to deal with at least one more question here, and then we can talk about this a little bit, and then if there's time, we'll go on and talk about another question, because this one, I think, relates right into this talk. This is another question from somebody else, unsigned, how many Gnostics are there? And then, in paren, does this question make sense? <laughs> well, no, it's a good question, but it has, again, uh, multiple answers here. The, the ultimate answer is, the highest answer, there are none. There are no Gnostics whatsoever, anywhere. 
a slightly um, a slightly lower, but still a very good answer is to say there's only one. Yes, there's only consciousness. There's only awareness. And then if we want to use it in a very relative sense, the term Gnostic, which is like the term I, which can be used in a very relative sense, uh, then we can say, you know, well, there, there are uh, at least many. I have no idea in the world. I mean, I don't know if anybody ever took a survey. I don't even really know how you could judge that. But, for instance, if you wanted to find a spiritual teacher, it would make sense in terms of asking, well, is that person uh, a Gnostic? Are they enlightened? Uh, now that this the the way this question is phrased is already phrased within the framework of delusion, but it still has a relative value. Uh, you might go start studying with a teacher who apparently seems to be enlightened, and then after spending some time with them, you may begin to question that, and you may start to uh, question whether they're genuine at all, and maybe they're total charlatans. You know, every week they ask you for a thousand dollars or something. You might start to suspect that. And you have every right to make this relative judgment this way. It's very valuable to make. You'll never know for sure, and except when you're enlightened, and then you realize there was never anybody enlightened anyway. So it's this paradox. So we could answer this question in all these ways. We could say, there, the, ultimately, there is no one. That is what Gnosis is, is to realize there, is no, there are no Gnostics. Or we could say it's, there's just one. There's this one enlightenment. I gave a talk on that once. Just the same enlightenment happening over and over, if you like. It's the same awareness, the same consciousness. It's like um, you look up at the sun, and you know there's some days it's cloudy, and then occasionally the sun parts, and there's a, the sun shines through, and then it closes up again. And this happens over a period of time. You might you might think there are many suns up there, but there aren't. There's only one sun. It's the same sun that's shining through. So in a, if we want to talk, again, relatively in a historical sense, you might see each uh, appearance of a Gnostic in form is simply uh, another uh, parting of the clouds, another ray of the same sun shining through that, that appearance. Uh, or in a very relative sense, we can talk about, well, I don't, you could, I, don't, I don't know how you do a survey. You could start going through the library here and counting up how many Gnostics there are, um, make some sort of rough guess, guesstimate or whatever. Uh, so that's the answer to that question. I thought it tied in very well with the uh, first question. Now we got a little more time, so let's... Does anybody want to ask questions about this particular question? Yes. Um, when you talked about there was no Gnostics, what came up for me was that we're all Gnostics, some of us know it, some of us don't. That's exactly how the um, Buddhists put it. There's no difference whatsoever between Buddhas and any ordinary sentient being, except Buddhas know it. Mm. Now, you see, it's interesting, because I've said this before to groups of people, there's no difference between you and me, and everybody's a little bit relieved, but I mean that absolutely literally, there is no difference. Mm. And, and when they start to get the gist of that, then they get all upset again, because they like to be a little different, you know, <laughs> it means they're not an individual, you know. So that's a, a question where... When, when, uh, when Gnostics, now I'm using the term in a relative sense, say that, it is to be taken absolutely literally. It's not just, it's not something to relax and say, well, I guess there's nothing special going on here or whatever. You know? This is a radical, radical teaching. We never should lose sight of that. It's, it's, uh, but the other side of it is the radicalness is the ordinariness of it. It's precisely what everybody overlooks all the time. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure this has anything to do with Gnosis, perhaps, um, but I've become aware that some Gnostics seem to have certain powers or abilities. They can heal others. They can awaken people just by looking at them or touching them. Could you touch on that a little? Um, it, yes, I certainly think that is true. And I, it, this can happen short of being a Gnostic. Mm -hmm. People on spiritual path develop these. Um, in traditions, uh, for instance, well, in all traditions, but particularly in India, they warn against cultivating these cities, these powers, on a spiritual path because it's so easy to get fascinated by the powers, and then you don't ever achieve liberation, attain liberation. And in fact, the powers can become great ego boosters and builders. So the warning is always, well, if they happen, they happen, and use them purely for compassionate reasons, in service of other people. Mm -hmm. In the Buddhist tradition, as I read you before, um, 
along the way you may acquire these, but this is really something that then afterwards you, you would then, once you're enlightened, maybe study to acquire because now already the only way you could use it is selflessly. That's the whole point. They don't, they don't uh, emphasize this on, on the, in the stages leading up to uh, realization, but in the stages afterwards. Uh, but these are, uh, these are not powers that there's anybody controlling. So they either happen or they don't happen. Now, I've read in the Tibetan tradition, if you do, for instance, certain concentration practices and certain drops practices very intensely, go off in a cave and really work with it, that these will manifest, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never had any occasion to do that. And uh, I have only one city. It's a silly city. I, I'm never at a loss for parking space. <laughs> I always get a parking space within uh, two blocks or two turns around the block. And the only one time it ever failed, uh, or no, it's failed twice, going down by the university when I was going to, uh, trying to get something to eat. In fact, we went, uh, well, we didn't go around the block twice, so we didn't give it a fair shake. But we went down to China Blue and and then turned the corner and went had pizza instead. <laughs> Actually, when we talked about going out, she said, where do you want to go? I said, pizza. And she said, well, I, you know, how about China Blue? I said, that's fine. But we ended up with pizza because my city failed, right? This is the first time I've ever heard of this. That's, uh, I've got the same city. I don't know anybody else. <laughs> I thought it was uh, my favorite with the parking gun. Especially Western city. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. In the East, maybe they had chariot spaces or something. <laughs> uh, Joel, what about uh, Frank, Franklin Merrill Wolf um, and his inductions that he used to do? Right. What's that all about? Well, and that's an interesting question because the one thing you just mentioned is you, some people have the power to enlighten. I have never heard of that being the case. I'm not saying it, it couldn't be the case. Certainly have the power to create states in people very uh, blissful states or all sorts of states. And my teacher, Franklin Merrill Wolf, had this. Uh, and again, it wasn't something that he did. I mean, he would start a talk and it would happen, and he knew how to make it happen in that sense, but it wasn't like he would look and zap people. And it was as much um, dependent on the, the person's preparedness. In other words, when he would do this, not everybody would get it. You see what I mean? Uh, and I, uh, when I first started living with him, I heard about this, and I heard about it a lot from his students, because they were all very, you know, excited about all this, the ones that it happened to, and the ones that hadn't happened to were all jealous, because it hadn't happened to them, you know. <laughs> so I talked to him about this, and I said, have, have you ever actually enlightened anybody doing this? And he laughed, he said, no, 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 no. He says, you know how you make a donkey go? He says, you put a, car a carrot out in front of their nose, and you beat them with a stick from behind. And he says, my inductions are the carrot. And that's the way he used it. But he said um, no one was ever enlightened. There's another, uh, what sounds like the same sort of power in the Tibetan, in the uh, Buddhist tradition, particularly in the Zen and Chan tradition, of this mind-to-mind -mind transmission. You'll always uh, hear, uh, particularly in the Zen tradition, talking about this cannot be transmitted through the scriptures. It's beyond the scriptures. It's mind-to-mind. -mind. Well, it's mind-to-mind, Normally, we think of this as, as different minds, so something's happening, jumping from my mind to your mind, or the master's mind to the student's mind, or something like that. But there's really only one mind. And again, if you read uh, fuller descriptions of this, like Huang Po, you know, he talks about there is no transmission from mind to mind. There are no minds to, for anything to be transmitted. So the, the term developed as a way of pointing to the fact that this was not any sort of knowledge you could acquire through reading, that it came some other way. And it came through uh, this relation, it came within the context of this relationship between the student and the, the master. But it's not something like a, a spark leaping from mind to mind. There's a, a marvelous recent description I read from the Tibetan tradition. This sounds very Zen-like. This guy had been studying Dzogchen for years and years, and his master, one evening, they were sitting outside, and um, it was a pleasant evening, and his master said, they tell me you haven't realized yet, you haven't attained Buddhahood. And the disciple said, no. He says, well, it's so easy. He says, just sit down with me now. And so the guy sits down. He says, now, you hear the dogs barking in the temple? 
He says, yeah. And he says, you see the stars? He says, yeah. He says, that's it. And then, this is written by the disciples, then his mind totally opened, and he goes on the whole description of this. But this is a, sort of a mind-to-mind -mind transmission. It's not that something jumped, it's that his, he was ripe. Through this relationship, he had become ripe. And so it's like the master, there's like a ripe fruit, you know, the master just gave it a little flick, and it fell right then. So that's another description. I have, I have heard of people having uh, tremendously high states in the, you know, in the in presence of a teacher or master and so forth. I've never heard of somebody actually becoming enlightened uh, from that. Yeah. Uh, that particular question of whether uh, a guru can transmit this uh, is something that I was very interested in when I went on my journey to India and uh, I spent a fair amount of time investigating that while I was there. Uh, there's a contemporary Hindu guru of great renown who uh, it's said of him that he can enlighten people and so I was very interested in this and so I spent a number of weeks with him and um, he does claim to be able to do that and I find his teachings personally to be a little slippery he's constantly contradicting himself and I'm not so sure he's careful in his use of words and stuff but I noticed that there was definite change of consciousness in his presence, um, and people reported even more extreme states of consciousness than I experienced. Uh, so I was really interested. And uh, but then, uh, then one of his talks, he was saying that yes, he could indeed enlighten people, and had done it in the past. But he said, but they weren't able to hold on to it. You know, it would last for a little while, and then it would go. So it was clear that he was not speaking of enlightenment as precisely as we're talking of a gnosis here. He was speaking of a transitory state of consciousness. So it appears that that's possible, but his experience, as he admitted, was that no, it's not possible to completely enlighten right. somebody. But to... I think uh, Ramana Maharshi's uh, description of this is perhaps most accurate. And this is again from the Hindu tradition, and in the Hindu tradition, uh, especially if you are a devotee, you're waiting for the grace of the guru. And uh, a lot of, of Ramana Maharshi's disciples, after being in his ashram for a while, were disappointed. They weren't getting the grace of the guru, and they would complain to him, you know. So I've been around here five years, I haven't got any grace, when are you going to give me your grace? And he said, the grace of the guru is always available. There's no special time for giving the grace of the guru. In other words, it's not something Ramana Maharshi waited until you pass some test and then would zap you. Do you know what I mean? This is, but this is the grace of the guru, which is the grace of God, which is the grace of consciousness itself, which is the grace of that awareness. It's always there. It's always right in front of us. It's always available. So, again, it's a question of... Uh, this match between the individual preparedness of the seeker. Now, it may be that it, you walk in one day, instead of hearing the dogs bark, uh, your guru says good morning, and that's the thing that, you know, enlightens you. But it's not something the guru's doing from that, from that side that, and withholding, you know, like waiting until you are a good boy or a good girl or something like that. All right, let's uh, go on. I think this will be fairly short. But it is ties into this, so it would be nice to cover it um, in the context of this larger talk. And this is from Mary Song. She identified herself. As I observe myself aging, I sometimes notice my desperate urge to cling to youth. I realize this is an age-old universal quest for the fountain of youth. Can you comment on this condition from the point of view of one who has realized the truth? You could call it the fountain of truth. <laughs> Thanks, very Song. <laughs> I'm not sure I have a lot to say except to tie in with what we were talking about earlier, that if you like from my point of view, I don't feel any aging at all. Uh, this donkey's getting older, and uh, it's, it's actually... Uh, Sometimes a little frustrating, but most of the time it's just kind of interesting, really. Uh, but awareness, consciousness has no age. It's not like consciousness exists, continues to exist through time, like I'm expecting when this donkey dies that 
I'll have some other form or something like that. Consciousness is outside of time. Time arises in consciousness. And everything that's related to time arises in consciousness. So I never feel like I'm passing through time. I feel like time is passing through me, if you like. So these changes are going on, all sorts of changes. Changes, you know, in a relative sense, out there and in here. And it really doesn't make much difference. Now, there is a kind of a, a personal sort of curiosity about what happens as the body gets older, you know, so you can't do certain things. Or, you know, um, the other day I dug out some old pictures of myself and this buddy from Vietnam. He had contacted me after all these years, and he didn't have any pictures of himself from Vietnam. So I dug these out, and I went down, and I had just the negatives, and I had them blown up. And... Uh, I don't know, six or seven pictures, and Jennifer was looking at them. Now, I was looking at them, and I didn't see any change at all. I was like, I wouldn't have recognized you. Uh, and then I looked again, of course, you know, you can put on my glasses. This helps if you don't wear your glasses. Uh, but uh, I think the key thing here is really not uh, something even deeper than just the question of aging. It's this whole question of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, this is something you can, by paying attention, by examining, you can start to actually experience life this way. Go look for time until you're really convinced that, that time is just really a mental construct. You will not find where one moment begins, another moment ends. You'll not find any uh, future. You'll never find any past, you know. Uh, you'll never find any a line that divides past from future that we might call present. Or we talk about the, a, dura a moment's duration. You'll never find a beginning or an end to any moment. You just won't find any of the things that... Uh, the, 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 the terms that we use in terms of time, you'll never find them in your experience. And if you do that for a while intensely as a meditation practice, you will start to experience uh, the world as just a vast awareness with forms passing through, changes happening in. But, but not that you are going through any changes. So I don't know if that answers your question. I don't know what else to say about it, but... Any other questions or comments? So let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to hang around, have some tea, check out the library, chat, and until we meet again, peace to you all. <laughs>